Welcome to Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond podcast. My name is Vignesh Devraj, an Ayurvedic doctor and holistic health coach. Each week we share wisdom or interview an inspiring personality to guide you become your healthiest self. Remember, your health is your greatest asset. This coming Sunday, which is 26th July, I'm holding an interactive webinar on healing powers of Ayurvedic herbs and spices. In this 90-minute session, I will take you through the wisdom of Ayurveda in understanding how herbs and spices can be used for our own well-being, vitality and also in preventing certain common ailments. Please find the details of the program in our show notes. In case you are listening to this podcast after 26th of July, please check our website for further details about the future workshops. In today's episode, I am welcoming back Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury, the author of two great books, The Prime and The Sound Medicine, which I read and I highly recommend. Dr. Chowdhury is a neurologist from California who also integrates Ayurveda and Siddha medicine in her practice. And in my understanding, she is much more than a great neurologist. Rather, she is a phenomenal intuitive healer and a teacher and a very humble human being. In this episode, we discuss about some interesting aspects such as why Western medicine has so many diseases which are idiopathic in nature. Idiopathic means diseases of unknown origin and how mantras, meditations and sound healing has to become a part of our lifestyle and why the future of healthcare looks very promising in spite of whatever healthcare issues that we are currently facing. A very inspiring personality with lots of profound wisdom and her gift is to make complex ideas into an easy-to-understand facts in an interesting way. Now we go to Dr. Kulri Chowdhury, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Kulri Chowdhury, again for coming back to my podcast. I'm so looking forward for this interview. And I must say the book about your sound medicine, it is really mind-blowing. And I really loved every part of it. I have marked it. The only problems, I think I marked 80% of that book. It's really, it's really one of the best books on when it comes to integrative and holistic healing that I recommend. And uh, I do hope that we will have the physical copy ready so I can put it in the library of Sitaram Beach Retreat because we get a lot of clients who come who are interested in such things. So I'm so looking forward. Thank you for being part of this podcast. It's my pleasure. I'll tell you, I was such a studious person. And when I saw how you marked up the book the first time, I said, okay, this is this is the kind of podcast I like to do because you are you're so studious in in the material and it's such a joy then you know to be asked um, questions from somebody who has gone so deeply into the material. So I really appreciate your approach. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I must say, every time that I invested in this book was worth it. <laughs> so now let's get into the question. One thing that I really uh, loved the chapter called Human Biofield in your book. And you're talking about, you know, the modern medicine is stuck with the, you know, you're talking about the five sheets, like the Annamaya Kosha, the Pranamaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha. And you're talking about the Annamaya Kosha, which is the food layer, you know, our body is a food layer. And you say that the Western medicine is limiting to observe our body just with the food layer, not beyond to the Pranamaya Kosha and this which is like 20% of the whole uh, layers. And one of my biggest problems I see is every Western medicine textbooks that you say, not every, some of the big textbooks, they say that 80% of the diseases are diseases of unknown origin. 
And when you have 80% of the diseases of unknown origin, it's like, you know, you can't treat majority of them. And it is, there's not much difference between going to a casino and treating that. Because when you don't know the, what is the real cause, you can't treat unless you give a symptomatic relief. So I think this is where the Western medicine missed the bus. They don't go beyond this. So would you say, is that the reason why they got it stuck? And also, when we read about the Newtonian theory you talk about, because after the Newton came up with the physics laws, which was the origin of the Western medicine, and there were a lot of other laws before the Newtonian law, and which we completely forgot. For example, in the Vedas, we have the Akashic records and the the understanding of akasha, the sound, and the, one of the first uh, sense organs in our body to work and also the last sense organ to evade. So when we consider all of this, what is the future for Western medicine when it is having so many diseases of unknown origin? Okay, so that's a, that's a huge question. So I'm going to break it down to make sure yeah, that... Just two parts. The Western yeah. medicine, 80% is unknown, and then you have the... Annamaya Kosha, and then the Newtonian law. So if you could... So let's go, some, we'll go yeah. into those as two different parts. That's great. And I was so happy that you're asking this. Um, so first of all, one of my frustrations, especially as a neurologist, because in, in neurology, I think almost <clears throat> more so than any other um, modern field, we have a lot of unknowns. And so every time I would ask, you know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Um, one of the things that I was taught during my neurology residency is we don't ask why in neurology, which I found to be very frustrating, you know, as such a curious person. And so as I got deeper into Ayurveda and into the medicine, understanding this concept that there is a core energy in the middle of us that is consciousness. And that that consciousness has been described as many different things as a soul or source or the self capital S um, but that consciousness, that energy in the middle is wrapped in these five sheaths and that disease can really erupt from any one of those five sheaths. That made so much sense why I wasn't able to ask the questions about the root of many of the neurological diseases because Western medicine is predominantly fo focused just on the outermost field, as you mentioned. So I'll just briefly tell your listeners, you know, what are the five um, sheets? So the outermost sheet, and I'll, I'll use terms that um, people can kind of relate yes, to. Yes, definitely, yes. The outermost sheet is the physical sheet. And then after that is the prana or energy sheet. And then after that is the mental sheet. And then more inward to that is the knowledge sheet. And then finally, the innermost sheet is the is called the bliss sheet and then once you penetrate that bliss sheet you are now in touch with that source energy that um, is responsible for the creation of all of those sheets and so in western medicine we have mainly identified with that physical sheet measuring tests and so forth are predominantly physical measures and we won't even call something a disease until it has a physical laboratory evaluation, which is also very uncomfortable because people say, I can tell something is going on, but my laboratory tests are still normal. And so the doctors are saying, I don't have anything. Mm -hmm. And so when you're predominantly focused only on that outermost physical sheath, you're not going to capture the conditions or I should say, you may see the conditions, but you won't understand the origin of them. 
if they're coming from the prana sheath, if there's a block in movement of energy, you're not going to be able to explain why this condition that's resulting in the physical body is occurring if you're not even aware of the physical sheath. And even Western medicine now is beginning, now just beginning to understand the connection of the mind and body. That for people who have depression, um, they have chemical imbalances that can result in physical pain, that can result in weight gain, that can result in diabetes, that we're only now starting to understand that abnormalities or imbalances in the mind can cause actual physical manifestations. And even with just that connection, I mean, look how much we've been able to understand conditions like fibromyalgia, um, you know, or um, so many gut issues, you know, things like IBS, even looking at autoimmune conditions and seeing how conditions like anxiety and depression can impact autoimmune conditions. So even with just the acknowledgement of the mental sheath, it has grossly opened up our understanding of being able to explain why certain physical conditions occur. So as we become more and more aware of these other sheets, like, well, what exactly is the pranic sheet? What do imbalances there look like? How does it manifest? And then even in looking at the wisdom sheet, as we start to understand what these fields are and what information these fields hold, then Western medicine will have a greater and greater appreciation for the physical manifestations and a greater explanation of how to reverse it. You know, that if something is coming from the mental sheet, well then what are the tools that you use for the mind? Because those tools do look very different than something that is just in the physical sheet. You know, that exercise may help the mind to some level, but then things like meditation really, really can help something that is coming from the mind. And we're seeing that even in the, um, American Academy of um, Cardiology here, American College of Cardiology, um, that transcendental meditation, you know, meditation forms are being used to help treat cardiovascular diseases because they're starting to get that there is this connection. But without the connection, you know, if, if I covered one eye and if I covered your right eye and you could describe now your left world very, very well, you would never be able to integrate the information coming from your right, you know, visual field. And so that's just the state that we're in. It's just a blindfold right now. And as we're starting to remove that blindfold and, you know, in, in working with the pranic um, sheath, like interventions like acupuncture, um, qigong, um, energy medicine, that is now starting to show people the medical field, how, blocks in the energy field, how blocks in the prana sheath um, can also impact both body and mind. So it's coming little by little, little by little, but if you don't have a full vision of what is a human being, how on earth could you begin to explain the actual cause of disease? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to the second part of your, your question, we have this idea that medicine and science and technology is always progressing forward you know we have this misconception and of course like in india it's all it's already known that it's cyclic meaning there were times in the past whatever that means to you know to you of what past means but there were times in the past where civilizations were actually more advanced mm -hmm. right and then there's a decay cycle 
and then those times start again. And so some cultures, India included, China included, had this cyclic view of time that there were times where things were better in the past and then information decayed. The West predominantly thinks that we just keep getting better, that what was known in the past was not as advanced as what was known you know, now. And so this has happened with modern medicine that you know, many, many of the scientists, um, you know, before Newton, and actually Newton also did a lot of work in um, the concept of ether, but there were many, many scientists before Newton that were looking at this field idea, this idea of there is a field effect, mm -hmm. and that the human body, as well as the entire um, manifest world, the entire material world, wasn't just solid, but consisted of different fields. And that's where this concept of ether was being explored by you know western and european uh scientists that there must be some substance that is connecting all of creation in order for this information to be passed in a field effect a field just means that it's information be pa passed from a non-local standpoint mm -hmm. right so it's not just that because i push something or I have a physical effect on something that I've exerted effect on it, that you can actually exert effect from a field event, which means something from way over here can exert effect way over there. And you know, that's become kind of more understandable to, you know, we were talking about like the butterfly effect, that how can a butterfly in Tokyo flap its wing and cause a tsunami, you know, in some other part of the world. And that's an exaggerated example of that. But how could something that is located in one area have an effect in another part? And it's this idea that we are elect we're we, we are many types of fields. Electromagnetic fields are the ones that we're starting to better understand just because we can measure those in modern medicine. You know, we measure the electromagnetic field around the heart. We measure the electromagnetic field of the brain in the form of EKGs and EEGs. So we're at least willing to acknowledge that the human body does produce and is composed of electromagnetic fields. But there was this concept before of beyond electromagnetic fields that we were all somehow connected energetically by a substance called ether. And that's the equivalent of how the Vedas and the Siddhas described um, Akash. You know, that it's this subtle substance that essentially negates the mm -hmm. presence of time and space because it connects everything everywhere all of the time. And then what happened with kind of Newtonian physics is it broke away from that, that train of thought, which is a train of thought we are now only coming back to. So again, going back to this idea that time is actually cyclic and knowledge is actually cyclic. We're now in quantum physics, starting to come back to this idea of the field effect and this concept of the zero point field, which I consider to be just modern day ether or modern day Akash, the modern day view of ether and Akash. Um, but, you know, with Newtonian physics, it really broke away from that idea of this um, field effect that, or this field that held all of this information because, you know, we're all basically at our fundamental level, just waves and waves hold information. It's why, you're able to transfer information via light, like onto, uh, like with CDs or transfer information via sound because waves hold information. Like Bluetooth, so, for example. Yeah, exactly. And so we began to um, break away from that 
And, you know, then here comes Newton, the new kid on the block, the new bright kid on the block who says, and he introduces this entirely mechanical world, mm -hmm. you know, very, very mechanistic, very, very reductionistic. And what people don't realize is that physics oftentimes will be the field that dictates other fields like medicine. And so as Newton came in with his reduced, predictable, orderly world, because fields from a human perspective isn't orderly, you know, mm -hmm. it's not orderly at all. Um, you know, a field like how do you begin to, from a human perspective of say, okay, I can co correlate this event with this event when you have a million different events happening simultaneously. You'll never have an orderly schema from a human perspective. That doesn't mean that order doesn't exist. Just like in chaos theory, we show that there is an orderliness, but it's not something that can necessarily be perceived just um, by the human mind, by just looking at an, an, a system. And so Newton was like, no, 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 it's very orderly. Look, you know, I do this and it results in that. And so that kind of reductionistic viewpoint and orderly mechanistic viewpoint of the world took over and modern medicine followed in, in, in suit of that, you know? And so then all of a sudden we broke away from these concepts that, you know, even the ancient uh, Greek and Roman philosophers had of um, matter is made of different elements and that there is this invisible field from which form comes from. All of a sudden we became organ, you know, system oriented that we started dissecting the human body and like, oh, well, here's the heart. The heart does this. Here's the liver. The liver does this. And then from there, we kind of went down this rabbit hole of reductionism to, you know, now, like if you have a problem, like let's say you have, you know, um, a stomach ache, you might end up having four different specialists to treat that one stomach ache, mm -hmm. you know? You may have your primary care physician, your gastroenterologist, and there might be a psychiatrist involved. And, you know, maybe there's like, you know, another specialist, a rheumatologist involved, like who knows, but it's, it's no longer this holistic view of the human being. Cause we went from this idea that everything is connected somehow and that human beings were more, not just human beings, but all of life was more than just the form to then it became, nope we're just what we can see and it's super predictable. And if you do a, you can always expect result B, which was Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. And then, then we came kind of full circle back to when quantum physics erupted on the scene. And they said, wait a minute. No, if you look at very, 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 very tiny, tiny measures of time and space, none of those rules actually apply. And so then it started to go back to this idea of this connection on a field level where again, time and space don't exist. Mm -hmm. And so as this has started to come out, now we're in this, you know, we're in a very interesting time in history because we've never had such a massive acceleration of information like we do right now. So we're in this unusual time in history where all this information is coming out and we're in this place of going, okay, if quantum physics is true, what does that now mean for biology when we're now so deeply steeped though in such a, a hugely reductionistic view of the human being? What does this actually mean for us? Mm -hmm. And I think when things like COVID-19 happen, <clears throat> it gives us an opportunity for pause to look at what does it mean to be human, right? 
what does it mean to be human on all of its different levels? Like the impact that, you know, you don't have to be sick with COVID-19 to be affected with it. People are having tremendous anxiety, tremendous depression. And so now we're starting to kind of look back at, well, how do we bring balance back into our lives? Even after this, mm -hmm. human beings are realizing we are, we are, we are vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know? And so now what does this mean? And how do we start to rebuild our, our sense of security? And that comes from a deeper understanding of what our true nature actually is. Mm -hmm. And so more and more information about, you know, not just integrative medicine, but um, energy medicine and field medicine, the, bio, the human biofield um, are starting to emerge, you know, as a way of bringing balance back to both body and mind. And as we start to explore at least those fields, I think we're going to learn more and more about the other three fields that also encase the very core of who we are. And it's all of that, all of that encasement with that core is what a human being actually is. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, it's quite interesting how you put it across. I mean, there is a story that I read. Uh, it's quite interesting. So we can understand how this a man was searching for a key that he lost. And he was searching under a, f a floodlight. So a police officer comes and asks him, uh, hey, sir, what are you searching? And the man says, no, I'm searching for the key I lost. Then uh, the police officer asks him, are you sure you lost it here? No, actually, I lost it few blocks before. Uh, then he asks, then why are you searching here? Because this is the only place where I can have the light. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. This is, the, I mean, this is the story that comes immediately when you talk about once we brought into that reductionist yeah. approach. And it's interesting, I think uh, it's in your book on the prime, you're talking about uh, the endo gastroenterology and the neurology, both of them, yeah. uh, they both are in two different locations. In fact, they both have to be together. <laughs> Yeah, I think you actually cannot be a good neurologist without having a healthy understanding of the digestive system mm -hmm. and vice versa. I don't think you can be a good gastroenterologist without having a healthy understanding of the nervous system because those two systems are so intimately, intimately linked. And that might seem like common sense for you because in Ayurvedic medicine, they are very intimately linked. You know, you can't together, really, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you only study these two systems together. They're not even really, they're not even looked at as mm -hmm. two different systems. Like those energies are energies that are balancing one another. Um, and so, you know, it, when, when we look at it from a holistic standpoint, it doesn't even make sense when we start to break it down into this specialty or that specialty, because we're, we're breaking down systems that don't even exist as two separate entities. Mm -hmm. That's really, I think that's where the future is going to be because a time will come when the mass will keep questioning if so many diseases are in, you call it incurable. Yeah. In fact, I would say instead of calling it incurable, if they say, you know, we are yet to find a cure for this. It makes such a huge difference. And that requires such a huge degree of humility. But and you know, so which <laughs> I know makes total sense in India. I mean, I will say India has been my greatest teacher of humility. When you go to these ancient traditions, ancient cultures, because they've been around for so long and they've been you know, back and forth, like up and down in history, like there was a time where India was at the top, then it wasn't, then it was, then it wasn't, and then it gets invaded. I think when you have this history, 
it breeds a certain degree of humility mm-hmm. of how transient the state of superiority actually is. And the West just doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very much in still our adolescent state. And so just like every adolescent, we know everything. I don't need you to tell me anything. And so that's just not the nature of younger cultures to have that degree of humility. I mean, even in my own life, I'm seeing how humility really came with, with age. And I think that's true for countries and, and cultures that humility comes after, you know, great spans of time when you've seen a lot and you've been on the top, you've been on the bottom, you've been in everything in between. Um, and certainly when I look at my medical training, it was not one that was imbued mm-hmm. with humility. And yet when I look at my training in Ayurveda and Siddha medicine, like the first lesson I got was humility, like, you know, to really be embraced by these systems, the first thing that happens to a physician um, that goes into Ayurveda or so that like in the traditional way is what, what's the first thing that happens? They start beating down your ego. And that creates such a level of humility that you become open. And so that's not our medical training. And so to even say, this is how much I know that is such a, um, that's such a state of, of humility. And that's not, that's not what we're cultivating in mm-hmm. modern. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, the, I must say, you know, if that humility comes, it will make such a huge difference for many people who are diagnosed with autoimmune diseases. I mean, for me, you know, being an Ayurvedic doctor doing a Panchakarma retreat, when I see people with ALS, uh, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's, and uh, after this, I, I wish I knew this long time ago. And why would did my doctor tell me it is incurable? Yeah, uh, no, I know. And 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 the the thing is, okay, if you see in uh, Ayurveda, the word for medicine is called as beshaja, and the the meaning of the word beshaja is anything that helps to remove the fear of disease. Yeah. So, the moment you call something is incurable, it creates such a huge psychic problem. I think that is one place where they are hitting the pranamaya kosha. I think that enters them completely. The pranamaya kosha and the, you know, and and the mental sheath, both the energy sheath and the mental sheath. And I think what we're going to do, I think there's different ways that you're taught humility. And, you know, I have to be very, very honest about my path. And I'm not saying I've completed it. I would say I almost feel like I've just begun it. My path has been knocked, like I have to be knocked down on my knees to become humble. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and so it happened first by getting migraine headaches that created the humility to Mm -hmm. open me up to Ayurvedic medicine as a professional physician, because I thought I was so beyond kind of Mm -hmm. this stuff that my mom had introduced me because now I was a bona fide physician. Um, And then the second time around, you know, huge, tremendous transformation was the humility in being in India and just like, man, if you want to learn to be humble, like just come and spend time in India. India taught me so much humility Mm -hmm. and i think the world is going through that right now with things like pandemics it create it knocks you down on your knees and it becomes an opportunity at least for humility and i think coming out of this like we cannot put tens and hundreds of millions of people on antidepressants and anxiety and anti-anxiety medication like we cannot have an entire culture that is going to be medicated and so when you are faced with something that is a problem that's bigger than you, that is where humility gets generated because you say, I need to now think of solutions that are beyond my old repertoire, mm-hmm. you know, my, my old medicine bag. Like, and so I think these, these events that happen like this, even though 
they're, they're difficult and they're chan challenging. They become opportunities for humility on a very large scale. And I, that's what I foresee happening. I'm certain seeing more and more people who are open to meditation and, you know, um, the chanting of mantras and the use of mantra, because they're just like, I'll try anything. I cannot stand my mind right now. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I don't know anything about sound medicine, but I'll, I'll give it a try because I cannot take the mental dialogue that's happening in my mind right now. Mm -hmm. That's so well put. I mean, uh, I think this is where the, for the future of well-being and healing and medicine is going to be unless because we don't have a choice because we come to that dead end. I think, see, there is one good, great benefit about Western medicine. They have reached the best what it can reach in that physical layer. I mean, you can do organ transplantation, you can decode a genome and to such a great extent, if somebody is in emergency, we can just give life back to that person. And, and that's very, very important to have. I mean, and exactly. Some other areas that they may advance, but no matter what, it doesn't, it's not going to help people's degree of anxiety. It's exactly. not going to help their depression. It's not going to help the degree of social isolation. It's not going to help their sense of feeling a constant state of fear and vulnerability. And so then that automatically forces us to go, okay, let's incorporate things that help with, with the mind, right? Exactly. So already that's forcing the expansion into another layer of human existence. And once you start talking about the body and the mind, you naturally automatically start talking about the pranamaya kosha or that energy sheath, because then you start going, well, what is this thing that's blocking the connection between these two? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is where, you know, a lot of work in energy medicine starts to come in, right? Exactly. And so, and so then as, as we start working with these three fields, automatically when you start balancing these three fields, and this is what I love about the design of human mm -hmm. beings, because we've really been designed in such a way, you know, it, it's a way of grace. That's, that's the only term I can come up with, because as soon as you start balancing the mind and the, the body and start realizing that there's this energy field connecting them, what happens when those start to get balanced? You automatically start entering towards a state of knowledge. There's a magnetic pull towards understanding deeper stages of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something that goes, wait a minute, if this is this, like what else is there? Who, wait, who am I truly? Like that that question naturally comes out and that's something I saw over and over and over in my patients. And it always surprised me because again, you know, I practiced in La Jolla, California, you know, surf and sea and, you know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. very much kind of the height in some ways of materialistic well-being. And I saw so many of my patients when they started to balance their mind, started to balance their body. There's one patient that comes to mind, a patient who had uh, multiple sclerosis and he'd gotten to a point where he was more physically fit than me. Like he would complain, like I can only do, you know, 10 miles of mountain biking. I'm like, I can't even do five. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, where's the complaint here? And we got him off of all of his antidepressants. And he was finally in this place where he's like, my mind and body are balanced. And then he hit this place of dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and, and I'm like, well, what's wrong? Are you depressed? He goes, I'm not depressed. I said, so what is it? He goes, I just, I, 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 I want to understand what my life is at. Like, not just my life, but what is life about? Mm -hmm. And so then he naturally started gravitating 
towards, you know, questions that lead you towards that wisdom sheet. And that's what I think is really beautiful about what I think is the beginning of what is happening with, with Western medicine is that as they start to have this question of now, how are we going to deal with the repercussions of COVID-19 on the mind Mm -hmm. will naturally begin to work like this. And then it'll, you know, it'll, it'll evolve. I, I always had this desire. I I never wanted to live very long. I I always was like, let me come. You know, this is the, I think this is classic, like, like, let me come, let me do what I came to do. Let me get it done with, you know, let me, like come to give whatever I was supposed to come to the world, my family, whatever. And then let me go out young and help. Like, you know, let me just kind of go out like, you know, on on a high street. This is the first time in my life, which that drives my husband nuts, by the way, because he always, he's like, no, no, I'm keeping you till you're 90, you know? (laughs) And this is the first time where I'm so enchanted with the direction of humanity. Mm -hmm. I'm really so enchanted with, the possibilities that are opening up for us and where the dialogue may go that it's the first time I have yeah, I had even the desire of like, Oh, I'd love to live past time. Like I'm so curious to see where society and where the world goes. Like I, I find it to be such an enchanting time of so, so many possibilities because I do think we're entering into a state of great humility because of some of the challenges we're facing. That's so true. I mean, when you look at uh, what, when we read history about what all sufferings humans went through, we are living, definitely living one of the best times. Not only that, today we do have the right to question many things, you know. Yes. Uh, we don't have to worry about being stoned to death if you're against some authoritarian things, you know. If somebody said the earth is the center of the planet and if somebody questioned that, you could get stoned to death. We don't have to worry about that. You can really question and ask why and then Okay, if they don't know, at least you're not killed for that. Yeah. <laughs> that itself is such a great uh, progress in our society. I mean, when you look at it that way. I've never heard it put that way, but it's so true. And I, when, I look at, when I look at the freedom mm-hmm. of dialogue that my son has with me compared to what I had with my parents, I mean, it's absolutely true. What he's able to question, mm-hmm. you know, at his age, I was never even able to approach. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very true. And here, I would like to ask you, you know, in your book, uh, the same chapter on bio, human biofilm, you talk about the water memory about the French uh, doctor. Uh, his name is Ben Veste. I hope I'm pronouncing it. Ben Veniste. You, you, you talked that he came up with the theory where, I mean, he made a research where he found the allergens and the white blood cells. And he found that even though the allergens were less, but still the water had the memory of the reaction. Yes. So when uh, this is this sounds quite similar to the other story about a Japanese scientist. You know, he he went on to check the molecules of the water near the monks, and he could see the crystals being formed. So water really stores memory. Yes. So this is what I could understand from that. So does that mean this ancestral uh, trauma or patterns and something that I'm taking from my culture? And some people say, okay, women are being harassed for ages, so they're still holding on to that trauma in their blood. So, so 70 to 80% of our body is a water element. Yes. So when you connect with this concept of water memory with this, I mean, I see some Eureka movement here. So Absolutely. can you explain about this theory about this Benveniste's water memory? 
Yeah, it's such a great question. I'm so happy that you brought it into like ancestral and, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, country and global, car we call it karma, but it's yeah, really yeah. like, how are we holding those vibrations inside of our bodies? Um, and so in this experiment, it was an accidental finding. And he was not somebody that was investigating integrative medical techniques. He was just a very, very good scientist. And one of his um, lab technicians actually had made a mistake. And what she found was, even though the allergen had been accidentally diluted to a point where there were no allergy molecules present in the water, and yet the white blood cells were still reacting to it. They said, if there's no allergy, if there's no allergen on a molecular basis in the water, how are they reacting? And so he was not a proponent, and you know, which is which is very um, central to the whole concept of homeopathy, right? That you can dilute mm -hmm. a toxin, yeah, but that yeah. there's still some information that's held in water. He was not a proponent of this, and I have tremendous amount of respect for him because he was a true scientist. <clears throat> a true scientist is somebody that even when you find something that is contrary to your own beliefs, you're willing to explore it. Right. And that's very, very, very rare. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. very, very rare to have that. Because usually if you find something that's contrary to your own beliefs, you discard it. You exactly. know, you discard it as this doesn't make sense. There must have been a mistake. I'm not even going to investigate if there was a mistake. I'm just not I'm going to pretend like it didn't exist. And so he really looked into this and he replicated the experiment over and over and same thing happened. And so then he started to question how is this possible? What is the theory around this that is possible? And so he began to look at the ability of water to record information and how was it recording that information? And this is the part that I thought was just truly brilliant is that he made this connection that maybe it's being recorded on a vibrational level. And so he used sound as a measure of vibration, as, as a container of vibration, as both a measure and container of vibration. And he began to actually amplify, he, he had the theory that, well, everything must make sound because everything is, is, is vibratory nature. Um, and so he amplified the sounds of specific medications like heparin, mm -hmm. so using um, uh, a very aggressive amplifier, so where you can get it on, the molecular vibration produces a sound, just the vibration of the molecules the atoms were producing a sound. So he recorded the sound of different medications, exposed the water to those sounds, and then when people drank the water, it had the same effect as the medication. Wow. Now, in a way, that's revolutionary. And it is revolutionary, except that that's been documented so much in ancient medicine. So when you go to a temple in india right what mm -hmm. do they give you they, they give you tirtham yes tirtham. and what is tirtham it's, it's energized water <laughs> energized water <laughs> and why do they give it to you um because they know that water and it's usually kept in a copper vessel or yes. some kind of metallic vessel right because that's a good conductor of sound and so that's kept in the um inner sanctum of a temple where the mantras are being chanted and where the um, temple has been activated, the energy has been collected. So it's kept in there. The water absorbs that vibration and then they pass out that water to everybody that comes through. And after you have hacked them, 
you know, you can actually feel like kind of this rush of energy that goes into your body. Like you can feel something has actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything about the design of a human being that's accidental. It's not accidental that we're made of 70% water. We didn't have to be. Why are we made of 70% water? Because we're actually designed to pick up vibratory information that then allows us to transform that mm -hmm. into electromagnetic fields and other cellular shifts within within ourselves now that's happening whether we know it or not and you know there, we've actually started to discover that there's a structure called the primary cilii which is on every cell and that's a vibratory instrument it picks up vibrations mm -hmm. and by picking up those vibrations it actually translates those vibrations into protein changes within the cells so we're actually designed for sound and so that's happening to us all the time we're picking up the sounds of people saying awful things to us mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is creating a biochemical shift everybody knows that oh i can't believe you, you said that word you know <laughs> that's it <laughs> yeah like it's immediate you know um i mean wars have been fought over yeah. what over words right like yeah. that's how that's how strong the impact is mm -hmm. Um, and then we're being exposed to sounds. We don't have this in India, but leaf blowers, I still don't understand this. Like, why are we in a war against leaves? So here in the US, people come out with these leaf blowers to make it weird. I'm like, why are we exposing ourselves to the sound? We're being exposed to all these artificial sounds, but then when we go out in nature, the sounds of nature have such a healing effect. So for me, um, you know, uh, I live in uh, San Diego in the US, when, which is right next to the ocean. When I go to the ocean and I just hear the sounds of the ocean, there is such a wave of bliss and peace that to me is so similar to sitting in a temple in India. It feels exactly the same. And that sound is having, an, and I think the fact that that sound is being produced by a body of water has such an immediate impact on on my physiology because and has it on really everybody's it's just i'm conscious of it because we're designed to absorb information through water which is mostly what we are mm -hmm. you know so this is you know even though that's revolutionary because he did it without studying the vedas or studying the siddha texts and all this but if you look at the way of the ancient practices and i'm sure that this was happening in your family and mm -hmm. you know your grandparents Families never drink water straight from a well. They put it in a copper pot, right? Mm -hmm. And then they usually put kumkum or turmeric, something auspicious, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they'll put it in their puja room where mantras were being chanted, and then they will drink it the next day. So they were really adding memory to the water so that the water would do something positive when we drank it. And being 70% water, I mean, what more profound impact could you have on your health other than the actual chanting of mantras would be to drink water that has had, you know, something positive um, remembered within it. I think uh, somewhere, I, I think it was in Los Angeles, I went to one restaurant and they had these flasks and it was written, get well, abundance, yes. prosperity. So it was like, they were trying to say that we are energizing the water with this energy. So if you drink this, you might win a lottery. I mean, I mean that's yeah, going no, to the extreme, but that the been, idea I've is... Repeatedly, I'm shocked at the way in which the West has adapted this. Um, 
in such kind of like a hip, young, you know, kind of like fun way. But it comes from India. But in India, nobody is um, using mantras to chant the water that they drink. But it came from us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So mean, you can find it in your LA restaurant. <laughs> exactly. That's that's the that's that's another thing about the West. So when you when you read about this story about the water molecule. I think we are just scratching the tip of the yeah. surface of the possibilities of healing that can happen with that. And this concept, new concept like epigenetics, that you can change your DNA and your predispositions can be changed, allergies can be changed. I think most of the people, when I see that they are having allergies, mostly the memory of the body reacting to something that is similar, not rather than the real allergen coming. Exactly right. So that is why in Ayurveda we do some, sometimes we do bloodletting and it just works like magic. So that some of the memory is lost. So something new has come. So I think no, that's what the future is. So, yeah, and we're, you know, we're starting to, we're, we're starting to see that also um, already just in the resurgence, like for example, of mantra meditation, which is, it's huge. It's huge. The number of people who do some form of mantra meditation uh, you know, in, in, in the West. And mm-hmm. I actually think where it needs to be brought back to life now is mm-hmm. like the U S is catching on. We need to bring it back to life in countries like India and China, you know, in these mm-hmm. ancient cultures that have, mm-hmm. have forgotten why we did this in the first place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's one side, but uh, on the other hand, it still survives in India. That's another miracle that we don't, understand in spite of all the invasions and the poverty this country has gone through still it is still surviving here you but, know, if we brought it i'm sorry I, I want to say this one last thing if we brought it i think to the youth in a new way not in the old dialogues of do this go temple you know do it because i told you if we brought it to the youth in a new dialogue one that was engaging and one that was scientific and one that was you know expansive I mean, I, I could just see, because you're right, it does still exist. But if we had this kind of renaissance in India of the youth taking this on from a place not of mimicking, but from deeply embodying the knowledge, I mean, what, a, what an amazing, amazing place this could be. I mean, for sure. I mean, the youth always wants to know why behind everything. So once they know that, I mean, for me, you know, reading your book, it enlightened me in so many aspects. So, so, so you were like this aha moment. So now you connect the dots. And so when you know the why behind many things, we become more invested in it and we become more committed to that. So I think that's where the future has to be so that people understand some of the beauty of many rituals that are happening in ancient cultures. And when it comes to healing, yes, definitely, that's where we all have to go. And see, when I uh, read your books, so there was one aspect I said, I felt, you know, if we go in this direction, you know, if we integrate this holistic aspects, the quantum physics, the mantras, meditation, the aspects of Siddha, aspects of Ayurveda, we can actually reach the stage of immortality. That is how it actually sounds like. <laughs> No, and, and, you know, when I read this to the text, like the aspects that I was exposed to, they were in that state. And that seems impossible to us from this place. <laughs> but you have to keep in mind, whenever there is a scientific breakthrough, there's technology that comes forth that makes the impossible possible. I mean, for people who didn't have electricity, it would seem impossible to bring 
light into your house when the sun sets that that just seems impossible. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, um, you know, the Siddha tradition in particular, because that was the goal of human life for the Siddhas was immortality. They turned immortality into a science. And when you begin to do all of these things, you can see how that's possible. Like already in Ayurvedic medicine, we're seeing that we can slow down aging and in certain areas even reverse aging. Mm -hmm. And so if you can slow down and reverse a process, couldn't you just by going deeper and deeper into the depth of it, negate it altogether? Mm -hmm. And when you look at this in the tradition, one of the challenges in India of trying to figure out when were they born, when did they die? Because they don't follow normal human chronology. Like, you know, some have lived for thousands of years, some, you know, um, left one body and came and took up like another form. Like they're living in a quantum state that is so outside the laws of nature and yet they were human beings. So that means human, this human body, because they weren't aliens from another planet. It mm-hmm. was the human body perfected. The human body perfected has all of those capacities. And so when you look at the lives of different siddhas, they chose at different times when they wanted to no longer be in form. Mm -hmm. And it was a conscious decision. And that's very different from a conscious death. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean the yogis who knew how to leave their body at a particular time. I mean, they chose whether they wanted to be material or not material. And all of this sounds like science fiction, but everything sounds like science fiction until you have the science behind it. You know, you, you look at, um, what was it? 70,000 70, leagues under the sea or 70 leagues. I forget the number, but you know, all of these books that were written so long ago about submarines and airplanes, that was all science fiction, you know, now, you have it. now we have it. And so when I'm reading about the Siddhas and I'm reading their texts, I'm not seeing them as spiritual works. They're describing quantum theory in their works. When I read them, I'm reading them from the perspective of a scientist, you know, of a physician. And when I look at that, I'm like, no, they're describing the science of immortality and they figured it out, you know, which means it is a plausible outcome if you take the appropriate steps. And now part of it is just figuring out what are those, you know, what are those steps? Again, my, I, I never was that drawn before, like to this idea of you know, because immortality isn't living forever. Immortality is having control over the, the laws of nature that govern your biology so that there's choice. Um, and I couldn't figure out why would somebody want to do that. Now, as I'm starting to see the world differently, as I'm starting to see history differently, I'm starting to understand, like, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the human race, when you don't feel like you're at the mercy of history, history is very interesting. It's kind of the best movie around <laughs> no and so you're kind of like well I, i'm curious to see how where this goes mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean uh when you watch the 70s james bond movies now uh, everyone has that technology what he had yeah. in the 70s <laughs> yeah and, and so it's just it's, it's a question of science and, and technology and one thing i love about the Siddha tradition is like just even the purification process which oftentimes you know and i'm saying purification of the body and mind we oftentimes think that that has to be a spiritual process and the way that they describe it, it's just, it's so scientific. It's so just kind of like, these are the steps that you take. And 
what you find in that process, because they're, they're just, they're, I, I call them the ultimate quantum biologists. They're just so brilliant at understanding biology that when you take these steps, that consciousness that is at the core of who we are just permeates all of the five she's. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they just take it and they just permeate all of the five she's with it. I and mean, it's just phenomenal. It's just that invisible energy that we are not able to see through our senses or feel it through our senses. And I think that's where the akasha and sound comes in, you know, that's what yes. we were talking about. Yes, and that's why what drives me nuts is when people think space is empty. No, because when you understand that space isn't empty, because, you know, tell me where in the universe there is not space. It's mm. everywhere. When you understand that space is not empty and when you understand how to master Akash or ether, you have literally mastered all the laws of nature. And that's what the Siddhas did. They mastered the laws of nature because it's in that innermost layer, which is, we call it the bliss sheet. Mm -hmm. And that is related to the element of Akash. Each of these sheets are related to a different element of nature. So that innermost sheet, um, the bliss sheet, Anandamaya Kosha, is associated with Akash. When you master Akash, you master time and space. When you master time and space, you master the entire world of form. I think this is exactly in Ayurveda. They say that if you master Vata, the yeah. other two are also, because Vata is all about space and air, you know, the, the yes. Akasha and Vayu. And, no, uh, and the fact that you are a neurologist, you understand nervous system is one of the most complicated. And uh, it, it just, you know, every time you read, oh my God, I didn't know what this means, you know. It just goes beyond your, it's like you are using your nervous system to study your nervous system. I think it just doesn't work that way. And it's our, our nervous system. Our nervous system is basically the mechanical or the machine part for controlling or connect. I don't want to use the word controlling. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. For connecting with Akash. You connect mm -hmm. to Akash through your nervous system. It's like and a Wi-Fi router. It is. It is. And, um... I don't think I understood why I wanted to be a neurologist. Like I just, I knew I was, as soon as I hit the neurology rotation, I knew I wanted to be a neurologist, but there was nothing about the neurological field I was drawn to. There was something about the nervous system that I was so drawn to. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's only now that I'm really understanding like why I was so drawn to this field because I was like, I, I, I kept saying, I'm like, this is the great black box. This is the future of medicine that when we understand what the true purpose of this nervous system is and the siddhas and the rishis that saw Ayurveda, they understood when you understand what this nervous system is actually designed for, you will be in complete awe, mm -hmm. you know? It's like the conductor's wand of the universe. That mm -hmm. is who we are. That's what's actually built within us. And sound, I won't say sound is the only way to un, you know, unleash the potential of the nervous system, but it certainly is the fastest and easiest for mm -hmm. this time in history. You know, the other ways take a lot of time in the day and it's very hard to do the other ways and still be a part of society. Sound is something that you can still be a part of society and unleash that level of human potential. So I think uh, if you take, if you use this knowledge in our day-to-day life, I think it's all about be very careful with the words that you speak and also yeah. the words that you speak inside and the quality of a person's emotions is the quality of the words that they speak. And like they say, the words are spells, you know, it can actually change yeah. or turn or 
manipulate yeah, or inspire? Well, after, after writing this book, I became way more conscious of mm -hmm. the words I said. Mm -hmm. And as I became more conscious of the words I said, I became more conscious of the dialogue in my mind. And this, this book has inspired me to change my life so much because it was the first time that I really began to look at the source of that dialogue and very actively begin to negate it. Mm. Like very, very, very actively. And part of that was doing, you know, inner work in terms of understanding my own childhood and understanding where did these messages come from. But another big part was committing to the use of mantras and committing to a mantra practice in a, in a completely new way, in a completely mm -hmm. new way. So I think uh, one thing that, you know, a person who reads your book will come out as, you know, like Karl Marx, he said, uh, you have nothing else to lose, but just your chain. Uh, so something like this, you know, we are programmed. Okay. If you coming from a place like India, if you believe in astrology, they say, okay, the planets are completely controlling your destiny. There is nothing you can do. Or if you belong to some community, they will say, it's all about your belief. Your beliefs are controlling you and that's it. There is no way out. But after reading this, okay, there are many positive psychology and many other things. You can be optimistic about your life. But after reading your book, it tells you there is definitely a future to break your pattern and to see a beautiful future. Absolutely. And, you know, man, mantra is, man is mind, tra is window or door or through. Mm -hmm. And so mantra is, is through the mind. And people often ask, what's the difference between an affirmation and a mantra? I said, an affirmation is something that you're doing within the mind a mantra transcends the mind mm -hmm. and when you transcend the patterns of the mind you're transcending all the patterns of the world of form you're transcending the patterns of your body you're transcending the patterns of the world and you know all of the planets and all of that because i get a lot of that from my indian patients of like oh this is in my planetary chart i said yes but those planets are all within the realm of time and space the potential of an activated mantra practice and i want to just share what i mean by that but the potential of an activated mantra practice is going beyond time and space when you go beyond time and space you go beyond karma and mm -hmm. karma is just karma is just a vibration that has been set into motion and so when you fundamentally shift that vibration the material world the the, the karmic outcome of that also must shift and so when i say like a meaningful mantra practice you know it doesn't mean like um, 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 okay. I said it a thousand times today. I did my mantra practice. Like, you know, a true mantra practice. And I talk about this in the book is when you are able to connect with that heart center, with that place of devotion within you, because it's the electromagnetic field of the heart that overpowers the electromagnetic field of the mind and actually shifts neurochemistry. So it's sound being attached to the vibration of devotion that that is where the magic happens mm -hmm. that is where the miracles can happen and then you just start wearing down the karmic patterns which are just vibratory patterns you're introducing one now very powerful vibration coming from that heart center which is the fuel basically of the human nervous system is is located in, in the heart in the form of devotion, compassion, love, all of those things. That's a vibration. When you introduce sound from that vibration, you're now setting out a rocket that can meet the rocket that is of karma that's coming at you. 
and it can help to, if not totally negate it, at least minimize it. Now you're in a place of, of great, you know, power. Now you're starting to work in a field that is outside of karma. And that's really what the Siddhas realize that yes, there's karma, but there's also a field outside of karma because it's a field outside of form. And sound is the fastest way to connect to that field. So after listening to this, you know, it gives you power that you are in control of your life. <laughs> that's the beauty you're of always, it. You're always in control because you created your own karma in the first place. Mm -hmm. It was always you. You know, you're always in control. You always have to be responsible. You're always in control. And what I mean by that is you always have a decision to make today that can negate a decision from yesterday, even if it takes time. But your power is always right now in your actions right now. Always. This is such a fantastic wisdom. I think all the people who are told you have an incurable disease or something from your past or something from your family or culture, I think they need to get this information right into their DNA so that I can come out of this pattern. Thank you so and much. You know, yes. Do you mind if I just say one yes, thing? Yes, my, my only concern is if you have time rather than. Yeah, I, just, I wanted to say this <laughs> one thing because I really wanted to make sure that people got this. To be cured of something does not mean that you have to have the disease be absent. Being cured of the suffering of a state is just as important, if not more so important, than being cured of the actual physical state. I want to make this really clear because I don't want people to have this interpretation of, I'm going to do this mantra practice and like, oh, my cancer is going to go away. Your healing is going to come in the form that it's supposed to come. And to be freed of the vibration of karma is to be freed of the suffering around any condition. And that may sound kind of complicated or, or convoluted, but karma can be processed on a level of inner peace where now what's happening on the physical body, it's, it becomes irrelevant in the sense that you now understand the purpose of all of that. That is always the number one goal of mm -hmm. um, mantra practice. I just wanted to add that last. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's where there is a statement. Uh, there are no incurable diseases, only incurable people, you know. So yes. sometimes people are so stuck with that there is no way I cannot come come out of it sometimes people come and say oh I, well, finally I found the doctor I want to I want you to tell me what's wrong with my body they, they already predisposed you know yes. something is wrong with my body they come with so much of limiting beliefs yes to, exactly. that is the first place that where we need to heal to come out of the disease exactly exactly so thank you so much, Dr. Kulri Chaudhary. As always, it's fantastic to have your insights. I'm sure many people who are listening to this will understand this. And those of the listeners, please do check the show notes. I'm putting the link of her book, Sound Medicine, and also her book, Prime, which is also available in the German edition. So you can find it in the Amazon. Please do read both these books. Really original, thought-provoking, coming from a neurologist who understood Ayurveda, Siddha, medit meditation, and she questioned everything wherever she couldn't find the answer. I highly recommend these books. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you in India when you visit. And please do visit my retreat, Sitaram Beach Retreat, when you're coming. And I'm sure we have a lot of work to do for the future. Thank you. Thank so you much. very much. Thank you. <laughs>